Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 292. Today is Sunday, the 2nd of September, 2018, and this interview is with Anne Handley. Anne is a keynote speaker of great renown, digital marketing pioneer, Wall Street journalist, best-selling author, and partner and chief content officer at Marketing Profs. In the first ever themed podcast here, Anne and I riffed on ultimate Frisbee metaphors and images throughout, talking about how brands should go about making ridiculously good content, the importance of developing extreme empathy, and how to navigate great digital marketing in today's crowded marketplace. Anne provides a ton of tips and tricks to generate and distribute great content, so if you want content delivered with a brilliant spin, give this interview a twirl. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Anne Handley, you are a a master of the universe in my world. I was just speaking to about you to a, a wonderful friend over here and how I was going to get you on my show. And I'm very glad after all these many months, if not years, of following what you're up to, <laughs> to get you on the show. So uh, in your own words, Anne, who are you? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And... You are not kidding when you say years, because it feels that way, doesn't it? We had so much back and forth. Um, If you don't know me, anyone who's listening, I am the chief content officer of Marketing Profs. I am ostensibly the world's first chief content officer for whatever that counts for. Um, And uh, I've written a few books. I wrote uh, co-wrote Content Rules, uh, which was a uh, one of the best-selling books on content marketing. And I wrote Everybody Writes, which is a kind of elements of style for a content marketing age. Um, I am a dog owner. I am staring right now at this massive garden that I'm very proud of. Um, and I have a little dog sleeping under my desk who I love with all my heart. Um, and, uh, the dog thing got in there twice. Did you notice that? That just (laughs) says a lot. And I'm speaking today from my tiny house, um, in my backyard. So that's pretty much me. That's beautiful. Well, um, you know, I was telling you about how I listened to Sam Harris have a debate with Jordan Peterson and, and, um, and, and Harris said to Peterson, are you going to do any Jesus smuggling on me? And so I'm thinking that Anne Handy does some dog smuggling. So she <laughs> smuggles the dog into the conversation. I smuggle dogs into almost everything that I do, um, perhaps aside from cooking, because that would just be terrible. Um, but no, I mean, whenever I'm on stage, I invariably will, will either uh, name check my little dog, Abby, or I'll have a dog... Um, uh, slide in there somewhere or gif perhaps something like that my favorite gif by the way recently uh because it represents what i think of as the, the state of content and marketing right now so it's my favorite gif i'll have to describe it to you because this is audio Indeed. um is a, a gif of a, a dog a sort of golden retriever whose owner keeps tossing it a frisbee and the frisbee is like just you know relentlessly coming at the dog over and over again because it's a gif and the dog just sits there 
dumbfounded, just does not have any idea what he or she is supposed to be doing, catching this frisbee, um, looking at the frisbee, just what is this frisbee, and it keeps zooming, hits him in the um, in the back a few times, and otherwise he's just completely like, what, do, what are you doing? And so the reason why I share that on stage and why I think of it as the, the sort of state of content <laughs> where, where we're at right now um, is because that's often how it feels as a marketer. You're producing all this stuff, you know, in the guise of that Frisbee, and you're sort of tossing it relentlessly at your customers, at your prospects, at the people you're trying to attract, and your customers are just like, you know, that giant emoji of just like the shrugging arms. It's like, I don't know what you want me to do with this. It's not what I'm looking for. So uh, so I'm going to throw um, back at you a another, <laughs> another mental image um, of a dog called Fred Bassett, mm. who's a Bassett hound. And um, he, well known in the UK spheres, he's a he's a basset hound who always has a few thoughts. And this one moment is he's out going for a walk by himself, actually having not been allowed to. And he's out there, and to to use a, a terminology from um, uh, another book, he's sifflaying. He's out there. Uh, sniffing at the grass many hundreds of meters away from his owner's home. And in the background, you see his owner's home saying, Fred! Screaming, <laughs> Fred! And you listen to Fred say, It's remarkable how on a clear day sound travels. Anyway, it's very British humor. But the, <laughs> as opposed to the idea of the marketer, it's also the, the thought of the receiver's side as you sit there and like, well, what am I supposed to listen to? Mm-hmm. You know, who's actually really doing it for me? Anyway, I think that that's a, maybe another way of looking at the state of content marketing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true, right? You're, I don't, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's expressing essentially something that we're both mired in a, in a big way um but yeah absolutely as the as the marketer you keep tossing the frisbees and as the customer um you know you're, you're just wondering what is this stuff that's that's coming in my direction um and not really picking up on the intent of the frisbee or call or whatever right. the case may be so all right you you've you've talked about this notion of creating ridiculously good content so I, let's keeping the frisbee theme going because I'm a big ultimate frisbee fan. Are you know how do we make the perfect 165 gram throw? Uh, and as a brand, what are the challenges to coming up with that ridiculously good content? How do they? How do you organize those thoughts if you want to consistently create ridiculously good content? Yeah, and so to me the best content, the most ridiculously good content is really ultimately whatever the customer values. Um, You know, content can't really be judged in a vacuum. You can't compare the content from this company here to this company over there because their audiences are different. Their brands are different. Um, And so in my mind, it's not like there's a level set on content, you know, that this is great content and this is not great content. Um, in my mind, that judgment is really made by the dog, essentially. <laughs> is the dog going to jump through the air and catch it? Or is the dog just going to let it sort of, you know, bounce off its back because it's not all that interested in the value that that Frisbee is delivering? So 
uh, at the same time, we have this propensity to want to look at best practices. Mm. And so if that guy throws or that woman throws with a beautiful arc or throws an open arm, you know, different type of throw, and then, well, I should do that throw because that's what's that look that really worked. It cut through the wind in the best way. So <laughs> following on that. So where does best practices fall into this idea I'm just wondering how long can we continue this Frisbee analogy? (laughs) Part of me wants to just see if we can make it right to the end of this half-hour show. You know, I just kind of want to try it. Um, I think best practices are useful if you are early in your career, if you're early in the content marketing game, if you are trying to figure out what it is that you are hoping to do. I think being aware of best practices and getting a sense of what has worked in the past is useful, but I don't think of best practices as a prescription, Um, especially when it comes to tactics. I think when it comes to the Frisbee, it doesn't make sense to try to do what another brand had success with um, because in my mind, you know, again, it's what is successful for this brand is not necessarily the prescription that you want to follow or need to follow because, again, your brand is different, your customer is different, so your Frisbee should be different. Um, that said, I do think that there are some maybe a broader set of, of tools of best practices, you know, in Everybody Writes. That's, it's a collection of lessons and guidelines um i think of them as as sort of bumpers on a bowling lane to use a different analogy other than frisbee um in the sense that you know i'm trying to give marketers a sense of how do you write well so great writing to me is that is it's not it's a it's a kind of best practice that i think you should follow good writing is something you should follow but it's not a tactic you know i'm not saying that means that you have to write and you have to write in a certain way to reach that particular customer otherwise that dog will not catch the frisbee um that's not what I'm saying at all. So I guess what I'm saying is is that there's a there's a kind of um, of best practice that I do adhere to that isn't necessarily tactics driven. If that makes sense. Mm. Well, in, in you know my my mum was always a stickler for English, and mm. I, I went to school in England where we don't actually teach English. And so when I arrived in America to go to you know, my high school originally and then university, uh, I I was sort of struck, if not stuck, by the fact that I didn't know grammar in a grammarian manner. I was just sort of taught mm. it on the fly. And so, inevitably, with my mum, I, when I would write to her, I always had to be a little bit more careful because she would pick apart my, um, my, uh, you know, the, my, my spelling mistakes. Going into writing, Anne, you know, in, in the essence, in a business environment, it's hard not to think of writing as an intellectual or, an, or a, a, a rational experience. You have to write this to get this kind of result, so you better get, you know, do well and, and write it correctly. And yet, as an artist, as I feel it, there's this all other component which doesn't seem to be instructed in business schools, which is allowing for emotion, intuition, instinct in your writing. So if you're saying, well, it's only got to be data, it's got to be grammatically 100% perfect, and it, it follows these best practices for this ROI. Uh, I feel like it's it's extracting from that that's this notion of humanity, or at least the humanities that I was taught 
in <clears throat> school? I don't think of writing as, or the exercise of, exercise of writing as, um, as a set of grammar rules to follow. Um, you know, that's not really the strength of Everybody Writes. I don't think that's why it continues to be, you know, a bestseller. Um, I think that great writing ultimately has great empathy for the audience. Um, it tells stories. It has emotion. It, give, it doesn't waste the time of the person you're trying to reach. So it has brevity. It has clarity. It delivers what it is that they're expecting, and it's very honest at the same time. And so that's the kind of way that I frame any discussion about writing. To me, it has nothing to do, ultimately, with subject-verb agreement and whether something is, you know, um, whether you're, you're, you're splitting an infinitive or, or whether something is, you know, a past participle or not. Like, honestly, I don't care about any of that. Um, and it, it always, I always think it's sort of funny when when people will, um, for example, all right, so I get this a lot. So I'll, I'll meet somebody at an event, and then they'll follow up with me about something. And they say, um, I was worried about writing this email to you because I know, you know, I was really concerned about it, it being error-free or using improper grammar or something like that. And the truth is, I don't care anything about any of that, you know, I don't, I don't care a bit. Um, because I would rather get something that's that from somebody that's straight from the heart, yeah. you know? So I guess going back to your question about best practices before, I mean, certainly there is, there are things that we need to know as communicators, you know, you need, you can't just write a, a something that's a complete hot mess and expect your customer or your audience to be able to, to be able to wade through that and figure out what it is that you're trying to say. But again, that comes back to brevity and clarity and, you know, and having a sense of empathy for the person you're trying to connect with. And so um, sometimes grammar rules can be useful in terms of delivering the brevity and the clarity and the empathy. But um, I think that's where a lot of people stop. You know, they, they fall down because they think, you know, like like you were saying when when you were in school, you know, you don't have a sense of grammar, so you you don't feel comfortable writing. And in my mind, um, you know, that's it's it's not a real it's not a real reason to not write. You know, it's not a real reason to not communicate with somebody. Seth Godin talks about this notion of having the attitude to want to write, as opposed mm. to the skill of being able to write. Mm. And you know, find people who have the attitude, and then you can work the skills afterwards. I suspect that you would therefore then subscribe to that. Then the challenge becomes figuring out how to move people who are in managerial spots who have been used to writing picture perfect, pitch perfect, um, <laughs> and that's both of them, I guess, uh, letters and notes, and where we were, you know, knuck, you know, your 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 knuckles were hit with a ruler if you didn't, if you split infinitive or you made a spelling mistake. And that's, I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating, but there is this notion of extreme rationality the way we are performing in business and allowing for this sort of you know mistakes and and gut wait wait we have all this data and instinct what well, we we have all this performance we have to do is the hard challenge and how do you organize that thought in senior management teams yeah i mean i i think it comes down to helping 
managers or, or teams or executives, um, you know, kind of, it, it, they need to sort of work through some of those issues. You know, last week uh, I was at a big company um, speaking at, a, at an internal meeting and a lot of what they talked about was this kind of like, it, not exactly what you're describing, but it's sort of that similar sort of, well, how do we get past this thing? Um, and my answer is very simply because that thing isn't working anymore. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. People don't want to be spoken to in that way. Um, and, it, and you don't really want to communicate that in that way, do you? I mean, really, when you think about it, um, to me, that's the that's the promise and the beauty of, of social media. Like one of the reasons why I love social media so much, why I'm I've been all in on Twitter since I don't know 2007 or something like that. Uh, why I love Instagram. Why I think that just participating in social media can make you a better writer. I don't think it's uh, I don't think the two are in tension with one another. I don't think that that's those are two different skills. Because the thing I love about social media is that it allows people and it almost implores people to communicate in a very human, accessible way. Um, and so going back to your question just about, you know, how do you actually instruct people to not be that sort of, you know, that, that sort of puppet um, parroting, you know? Yeah. But this should be this it should be video because we're doing some great hand gestures well movements here yeah you know you see my Um, frisbee throw my open i know i know but going back to that to your question about that i mean i think a lot of it has to do with you know just just letting people know you know first of all it doesn't work anymore we live in a in in a in an age where we are able to show people who we are and that we should be sort of you know to use a a, um (laughs) to use that that sort of slightly corporate word, we should be leveraging who we are as people to communicate with the people we're trying to connect with. Um, so, it, you know, in my mind, there's there's sort of no magic to it, and I understand that there's a subset of individuals who are never going to be comfortable with that, um, and that's okay, but, you know, I'll never stop saying it either. So <laughs> Right, so I want to dig in on second, because at, at some level, and this is something that's very important to me, is yeah. the acceptance of your imperfection, the acceptance mm-hmm. of who you are, not being the image of perfection that you were taught in school at some level to be. And, and even in social media, there's always a risk, of course, trying to portray some other image. But at some level, it's about being who you are with my foibles. And if I am an asshole, well, that's probably not a good idea. So that's not the good who you are that I want to show. And yet, at, at some level, it's also the reality of some people. So maybe those are the people who say, well, that's the way they want to go because they don't want to show that, and maybe that's okay. I, I, you know, How do you untangle that? Because at some level it's about being more who you are. And I, who studied women's studies, tend to, in a gross uh, generalization, tend to think that women overall seem to be more okay with this idea than men overall okay with the idea of being more human yeah, in being, being more you in your fullest self as opposed to just you know cutting off and putting on a tie and doing a professional self mm, yeah i don't know if that's true um i'm trying to you know think of i people who i know even um i'm not sure if women are are more okay with it or not because in some ways um I don't know. That's interesting. I've, I've never. I mean, 
I'm not a women's studies major, so I've never thought of it in those terms, um, and I don't tend to see the world in those terms either. So it's a little it's a little challenging for me to think about that right now. But it's my filter. Um, what's that? It's my filter. It's your filter. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't I don't see it that way necessarily. I mean, I think what the world wants from all of us really is just that we try to be, you know, try to understand who that we're talking to, who we are talking to, um, that we try to communicate in a way that makes sense to that person. Um, and that we, you know, try to put ourselves in that other person's, uh, shoes and we try to assume their, their point of view about things. Um, I mean, it's certainly what I do as a, not just as a writer, but as a communicator and as a person, you know, whether I'm talking to my own kids or whether I'm talking to this little dog under the table right now, um, or whether I'm talking to my audience at marketing props or, or more broadly to like, you know, my newsletter subscribers say, um, at annhanley.com. So it's, it's always what I try to do. And I think that that's what the most successful marketers do. I think it's also what the, the, it's, it's exactly what the kind of people who I want to hang around do as well. So I don't know, I feel like that's a little bit of a muddy way to answer it. But I, but I also feel that, um, that really all we need, if, if we tried to look at things from another person's point of view, ultimately that, that benefits us ironically well and and so this brings up a perfect conduit for the next idea Mm. or notion so on the one hand we're trying to create ridiculously good content and and the other term you like to use is extreme empathy so obviously these are quite related terms at Mm. the same time whether it's ridiculous empathy (laughs) ridiculous content or extreme (laughs) empathy (laughs) we if we're especially with with you with such a large audience and or a brand with a large number of customers or potential customers, it's very hard to be granular about that. So at some level, the, I guess the question which is, how does one develop empathy, especially if you're working in a company like so many of the people that we're listening, you know, listening to this are, mm-hmm. how do they develop that empathy to be in touch with their customers, you know, the 100 million or 10 million or 1 million, however large their set is, be empathic with that group? I think that, like like we were talking about a second ago, I mean, I think you just have to, you have to try to get into the the customer's mindset. Um, I think marketers spend a lot of time doing things like developing personas and trying to understanding, try to understand their target market. To me, it's a whole lot valuable to get to know one person who may be a person that, um, that you're looking to market to really understand that person, visualize them in your brain, um, talk to them on the phone, sit down and look at them face to face on a video camera like we're doing right now. Um, to me, that's hugely, hugely um, important to, to do just on a regular basis. Um, and so I talk to a lot of big brands who do what I just described. You know, they've got these customer personas. 
often they're, you know, sort of in a file somewhere that's tucked away on somebody's laptop or that's, you know, even worse, printed out into a binder and stuck on a shelf somewhere in a conference room. Um, and they, they sort of have this big notion of that person that they're marketing to. Sometimes they, I'm, I'm sure you've talked to brands who do this, they give them fake names, they give them fake attributes. And so I don't find that particularly useful. I mean, I think it's a whole lot more useful to actually get to know the people that you're, you're speaking with. Um, and I don't care whether that's, I don't think that's the domain of just a small brand. And I think it's actually the domain of, of it's, it's, it's a, it's an exercise that's available to anybody, whether you're at a big brand or a small brand. Um, I talk to a lot of marketers all the time who don't spend a lot of time speaking to customers, sales talks to customers, customer service talks to customers, marketers, unless they go out of their way often don't. Um, and so I guess I would, uh, I just challenge marketers to go out and, and talk to your customers, have a sense of, of not just that you are marketing to them, but that you have a certain camaraderie with them. And I think if you adopted that mindset as a marketer, then that will go a long way toward developing that empathy that you need. And I, by the way, I don't call it um, extreme empathy. I, I call it pathological empathy. So oh, another level. Yeah. And yeah, it is a whole other level. Um, and, you know, certainly part of that pathological empathy can be informed by data. You can look at, um, at, at just, you know, data about your audience um, at the macro or, or micro level. But at the same time, I really think that nothing can supplant that human conversation, that sense of, of not just marketing to, but camaraderie with your customer um, as, you know, whoever that person is. And so, I, of course, I don't know under the hood whether Anne Handy writes her own newsletters or there's a team of 24 fingers who, who participate. <laughs> oh, man, I wish. No, I do it all myself. All right. So then the question I have is inside Anne Handley's brain, when she's mm. writing this, is she thinking of someone? In which case, who is that? And how does she make her letters, therefore, work with everybody? The truth is they don't work with it, everybody. You know, they only work with people who are in that sweet spot of uh, a sort of market that I've identified where I feel like I have some integrity and I have a reputation. And finally, I'm interested in it. <laughs> so those three things. Um, and that is the, the sort of the, the sweet spot of marketing and content and writing. Um, that center right there is is really where I pitch all of my newsletters more broadly. Um, but at the, at the start of every newsletter, I always write, you know, just a short essay. And sometimes it has something to do with content and marketing ostensibly, but very often I'm using that as a Trojan horse just to talk about people and life and my perspective on things and what I'm thinking about that week. Um, and that's always informed by something, some conversation that I had with somebody who subscribes to my newsletter or somebody who is in that sweet spot, um, a problem that they have or a question that they've asked me or something that they're thinking about. Um, and so, yeah, so that's where it comes from. How do I get that information? Because, um, you know, if I don't talk to people every single week, if I'm not actively picking up the phone and, and calling subscribers because I'm not, um, how do I get that information is when people sign up for my email newsletters or my, I have one email newsletter. It, it runs every two weeks. So every fortnight, essentially, um, 
And when I sign up for it, they get an email. It's just an auto response from me that says, hey, thanks for signing up, number one. I'm really happy you're here. And secondly, it says, why are you here? What do you want from me, <laughs> essentially? Why did you subscribe? What is it that enticed you? What is it that inspired you? And the people who respond to that newsletter sign up tell me. I find that hugely valuable in terms of figuring out what it is that, that people are curious about and what they're asking about. So that's one way. Um, another way is just through interacting with people on social media. That's another reason why I really love social media, not just for the way that it invites us to be more human and accessible communicators, um, but also because it's a, it's a place that I can actively interact with people who share that sort of, you know, and share that sweet spot of, of interest and love that, that I have. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's really from those, those two places. And then occasionally I'll just get like a random inquiry on my email. Um, and that's a great place actually to look for ideas to write about too, that are most relevant to your audience to develop that pathological empathy. Um, my friend, Andy Crestadina, who has an agency in Chicago by the name of Orbit Media, he has this great tip that I stole from him and share very often um, online. Or, I mean, sorry, on stages. And um, and his 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 tip for people is that when you don't know what to write about, um, check your sent folder. That, that the questions that you get in email are great places to start your your content development process because those questions you get from customers, from colleagues, from um, you know, coworkers within your, your own company, whatever the case may be, those questions are really valuable in terms of if you can figure out a way to answer them in a way that's bigger than most people answer an email um, and then use that as, a, as the start of, of your sort of, you know, content development process, just hugely valuable. So th that's the way that I keep in touch, so to speak, with, with my own audience. Um, and, you know, there's nothing magical about that. I think any brand out there can do it. Well, except any brand is typically too much focused on their own little tummy button and what yeah. they're interested in and <laughs> to not spend the time necessary to listen to one anecdote or one friend or one email, mm. um, which seems to be the way you operate. So uh, maybe finishing up with a, uh, a last question, which is this notion of distribution. If I had to think of it, it's this uh, maybe the midfielder who's got that great hands knows how to distribute the Frisbee into the end goal so that we get a touchdown. The, the challenge with this notion of empathy in the, in the world of titles, for example, is that, and maybe even Google, is that there are techniques out there that are, are less associated with some empathic element and maybe more of a technical element. So to what extent does empathy participate in your title making, for example, is that something that you, you I mean, because that's, I feel, in my opinion, a fundamentally different skill than the writing that goes in the body than the one that goes in the title. Your thoughts? Um, I don't think so, actually. I, I mean, to me, it comes down to what will be interesting to the person you're trying to connect with. Um, you're still trying to connect with a person Headline is important. So is the first line. Actually, I obsess probably more about the first line than I do about the headline. I don't worry about the headline quite as much as the first line. Um, and why is that? 
Um, because the first line is, well, two reasons. Number one, I think that in this age of, of kind of content abundance, when there's a whole lot of Frisbees being thrown at that dog, um, that your reader is always looking for a reader uh, for a reason not to read. And so I don't want to give that reader a reason not to read. You know, they've clicked in a headline, they've made it into the first line. And so to me, it's got to grab them immediately. And so I think about that first line with my own sense of, of, you know, of, of urgency. I feel that it's, it's, um, it's the most important line in a piece, maybe even more so than the headline. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I obsess about that first line. Is that also from a technical standpoint? Because when you see in many of the mail servers, you can see the first line in even a mm-hmm. gray, grayed out element. Is that also part yeah. of your reasoning? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, marketers know to pay attention to the, to the headline too. I think that that's, that's advice that we've all heard how many times, right, that, that it's important for SEO, it's important for Google, it's important for, you know, for the way it looks on, on your blog and in your newsletter and all that stuff. We don't hear that same sort of mantra about the first line. And so it, I think that the first line needs, you know, just as much love, if not more than, than the headline. Because again, your readers are looking for a reason not to read, but also you really want to get right into it. Um, as it, one of the, the problems that a lot of us have as writers, just straight up communicators, is that we tend to not get right into it. We tend to what I call take a running start. So we'll justify why it is that we're here um, writing this post to this reader or we'll give too much backstory right up front. And it's like, just like slash that right out and just get right into it right away. Um, and so that's the importance of the first line. It's, it's, the, it's the line where you want to grab the reader as much as you can and to get them to read the second line and then the third line and then the fourth line. Um, it's also just a great exercise for the writer, I think, too, to really hone in on what is it that we're trying to communicate? What is it that we're trying to say? Um, And so it's an exercise for the writer as well to not take that running start, to not waste too much time, but instead just get right into, you know, why why are we here? What are we here to learn from one another? Typical of of your books, Anne, uh, lots of pearls of wisdom. and And I'm now reflecting for myself how I tend to take a lot of running starts to my mm-hmm. because I want to contextualize. I kind of feel like I need to justify and mm-hmm. and I round it out to qualify that this is really what I'm trying to say. Don't get it wrong and and ultimately that may be turning people off. So, and a beautiful thank you for coming on the <laughs> show. It's been a marvelous, marvelous moment. Double L or du- one L if you're English or foreign American. <laughs> just, just kidding. Um, <laughs> How does one get in touch with you, sign up for your newsletters, and uh, follow you? What's the best way? Oh, boy. So you can reach me um, at Ann Hanley on Twitter or at Marketing Profs on Twitter. They are both mine. Um, again, I'm the Chief Content Officer of Marketing Profs. Marketing Profs publishes two email newsletters a week. We have lots of educational information and resources for marketers. Um, if you are the kind of person who enjoys great writing and great content and just great people, then um, I publish my own newsletter. Again, it's fortnightly every other Sunday um, at annhanley.com slash newsletter. Um, and I did that, by the way, because as you get more successful as a business owner, entrepreneur, marketer, whatever the case may be, you know, sort of as you move up the food chain, so to speak, you get further and further away 
from making anything, from touching anything. You know, when I started at Marketing Profs in, God, 2002, I joined Alan Weiss, who was the uh, founder, um, as the chief content officer, and I touched everything at Marketing Profs. I edited every single article. I reached out to an author to get those articles. I was doing the headlines and the first lines, and I was taking it all and putting it up on the website, and then I was creating the email newsletter and deploying that as well. Um, but then as Marketing Profs has grown, you know, we have what, close to 600,000 subscribers now. We've got 40 people working here. I don't touch anything anymore, and I really missed that creating. You know, I missed creating. And so I wanted to be, I wanted to make something again. Um, I wanted to push the button again, and so that's why I started my own newsletter. Um, and I think there's a lesson in there. The reason I'm telling you the story is because I do think that there's a lesson that, that kind of harkens back to your question about um, helping managerial types and helping marketers get more comfortable with writing, with communicating, with being a little bit more accessible and open and human. I think it comes down to uh, being more of a, uh, adopting that kind of maker mindset, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be about marketing. It doesn't have to be a newsletter. It can be almost anything, but I think it's really important to make something yourself to, to feel what that feels like to communicate directly with an audience um, and as you say, you know, there are some people who will be intoxicated by that. They will love it. They will want to do it more. They will then apply it to various parts of their life, including their marketing world, if you're creating content outside of that. Um, and there are people who won't, and that's okay. But I think you've got you've to try. Well, I feel within that a flair of your journalistic background and that, that marvel of being able to hit the publish button and that, that excitement of pushing it out. And uh, anyway, I, Anne, have appreciated very much listening to you. I, I know yes, time is of the essence. It's been a pleasure to have you and uh, hopefully see you soon. I'm so happy we're able to work this out. Thank Yay. you for having me here. All right. Well, we'll see you on a Frisbee pitch sometime. <laughs> Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, Head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of Just in our
palms make colors blend and look ugly in the end. do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.